gift of wisdom from a once wise man said this, Two things I request of you, God. Two things. Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me. In other words, give me what is due to me in my life. Lest I be fool and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Question mark. Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. These are the words of Agor, the son of Yaka. Most scholars think that this is King Solomon, the nickname of him. It means the assembler. Agor. It means the assembler. It's because one who had so much wisdom, everybody came and gathered to hear what he said. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy. Lord, without your mercy, we would not be standing here today. We'd not be sitting here today hearing your words of truth, desiring to hear your words of truth. I pray your Holy Spirit would speak, Lord, would guide me, lead me and lead us all into the truth of your Son, Jesus Christ into the truth of how much you love us, how much you care for us, each one of us individually, where we're at spiritually, struggling, hurting, doubting, maybe even joyful right now. And praise God for that. And maybe even glorying in the glory of Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. But even so, whatever spiritual condition we are in and these people are in today, even including myself, you have a word for us. So we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would come inside of us in such a way to open up our hearts and minds so that we could hear and respond and grow closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I get started, whoever doesn't have a Bible, Mr. Medina, and the back has Bibles, so raise your hand if you would like one. <clears throat> I pray that you would take one. <clears throat> we are going to be in Revelation chapter 3. Ah! Why? Why? I don't know why. The Lord has a message. I know that. And there's hope. There's always hope. Even with the strongest rebuke from the Lord, there's always hope. And don't ever forget that. Please, don't ever walk away and think that. All right? It's always encouraging. No matter what the message might be, it's always for our own good in relationship. But before I get involved in this text in chapter 3, I must give you the controversial background of the four interpretations or approaches to the book because it's very important that we understand the book because I remember reading it when I first got saved and I didn't have any of this and it was good it was very good that I didn't have any of this why because Jesus was speaking the Holy Spirit was speaking and he I could I could tell what he was telling me because it was so fresh and so new and I didn't have any outside opinion that was so pure that was which so real but there's four interpretations that scholars give us, even way back when in the 17, 1800s. Okay? There's four interpretations or approaches to this book. First is the preterist view. The preterist view. It's a view that it was for the literal church 
and written in church code during John's day. Why was it written in church code? Because anybody who got their hands on it that wasn't a Christian would know and know where they were at and what they were doing and would cut their heads off. Because this was during the time where Roman persecution was starting to escalate in AD 90. So there's that view for the literal, literal church during John's day, the preterist view. The, 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 the second view is the historical view. Basically, it's a prophetic, broad view of the church age and its growth, of how the church is going to come about and even from, from the beginning of time or beginning of the church till now. Okay, there's that historical view. What am I talking about? Well, when you look at all seven churches, they represent every church age from the beginning, from when the Holy Spirit poured his spirit out upon the apostles in the church and started it in the apostolic age. That is the church of Ephesus, the church of Ephesus. But when we look at the historical view of the church of Ephesus, what was their spiritual condition also during that time? The loveless church. They were so pure. They were so right. They forgot about the love of Christ. The way it used to be. How they were so eager to tell people about Jesus. How so they were so eager to bring people in. Okay? They were like the Puritans minus the love of Jesus. They were a pure church. Can that happen? Yes. That's the historical view. The other example of that is Smyrna. Smyrna represents the Roman emperor persecution of the church. Okay, it got so bad, all the emperors were, were, were out there slaughtering those who were Christian and weren't, weren't giving allegiance to the emperors. Okay, that's Smyrna. But Jesus has such a wonderful word and, 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 and exhortation for them, doesn't he? He says, persevere during those times persevere. That's the persecuted church age after the apostolic age. The next is Pergamos. Pergamos, a church becoming nationalized or perverted under the emperor Constantine because it was what? It was a governmental institution. It started to becoming what it wasn't supposed to be. Perverted, twisting the meaning of the truth, making it national. You had to be a Christian. That's not the way Jesus proclaimed the gospel. It was a choice. It was supposed to be the impact of his love upon his people. So that's what Pergamos represents. That church age, the starting of it becoming nationalized and bringing what, what, what Roman culture into and mixing in the religion or the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Okay? The next church was Thyatira. Thyatira, the age in which the popes or the papacy ruled and declared worship. All right, they wanted them to worship the pope. We were the ones who had the last word. We were the ones who had spoke for God. We were the ones who were like God. That was the papacy movement. That was the corrupt church. They had become so perverted from the, the church age before they had allowed that stuff to come in. Now they have been fully corrupted because now man was ruling and claiming to be God. And he's the one who said he had God's word. That's the church of Thyatira. Okay? You see the spiritual levels in there though too? You see the spiritual condition levels in there too? It's not just the, the, the historical value there. And I'll get to that point in a minute. The next one was the Sardis Church, the Church of Sardis. And that represented the Protestant or the denominational movement and decline. 
It's interesting, when they started to put a name on themselves, that's when they started to decline. Denominational. That's when they started to decline because Jesus said, you have a name that you are alive, but truly you are dead. The denominational movement. They were trying to purify, but in essence became a movement and declined. Philadelphia, it represents the missionary movement, the revival of the 1800s. Okay, if you read church history, especially in this country, the revival that took place, the missionary movement that took place in England, man, it was, it was, it was awesome. It was huge. And this was a church that Jesus said, you guys are doing good. Keep doing it. Persevere. Okay, why? Because they wanted to see people be saved. That was the heart of Philadelphia. Laodicea, the last church. And everybody wants to stay away from this one. No one wants to be a part of Laodicea. No! It cannot be. But Laodicea represents modern Christianity, Christianity which had become lukewarm because of the prosperity of the church. They were no longer on fire. So you see all these different church ages and how they represent the historical view. Okay, so that's the second view. The third view is the poetic or spiritual view, which the book has no prophetic meaning or value, but has everything to do with us spiritually and personally with our spiritual walk and where we're at with Christ. That is the poetic or spiritual view. The last view is the futuristic view, futuristic view, a view of the coming of the Lord's day and the end time scenario. Now, this is a correct view. And I used to, you ask yourself, well, what, what, what view do we take? There's so many, there's four of them. Well, I used to believe that the futuristic view was the only view you could take of this book, but that's wrong. I think if we look at and we be honest with ourselves and we look at four, all the four views in which, which, which I have just disclaimed to you or proclaimed to you, that each one has a value for each one of us individually, does it not? So I think as a whole, as a church, as me personally, because of where I stood before, I need to be open to the Holy Spirit and what he has to say to me on all four views especially the prophetic view. Why? Because in the first verses, first three verses, how it, as Jesus introduces the text, or, 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 or excuse me, John introduces the text, what does he say? What does he say? He says this in verse 3, chapter 1, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this, what? Prophecy. Prophecy. So right there you get a clue that this book is filled with prophecy but it's also a literal meaning of the day. Why? Because he gives us the outline of the book in the next couple of verses. The things that are. The things that you see, the things that are currently going on, and the things that will be after this. The three outline, the three elements of the outline of the book. Beautiful. But he says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. In other words, you guard them in your heart, you internalize them and they become who you are. So there is a personal and spiritual value to the book. And we are, if we are good students of the Bible and want to know Jesus eagerly, we would take that all four views and combine them as we read the text. 
But I am going to present Laodicea in two aspects. I'm going to present Laodicea as the historical, or excuse me, three, all four of them. I'm getting way ahead of myself. All four of them. I'm going to present them as the literal, the historical, the personal, and the futuristic. Because it's value. And it's value for each one of us. Even if the the message is a rebuke. Because I called the message a warning. Do not forget my love. Do not forget my love. If you go to chapter 3, verse 14... Chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, there's three elements to this text. The first one in a relation to that supports the title. Remember who Jesus is. The first element, remember who Jesus is. Now look at the opening verse to this letter. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write. Now it could mean a literal guardian angel over the church which has a message and watches over the church for Jesus. But I think if we're honest with the text and we look at all seven churches on how Jesus addressed the text, we can look at the Greek word in its original meaning, meaning a messenger who is sent. Because it also can mean messenger. Messenger. So the word can have a literal heavily angel meaning or guardian angel meaning. But in the context of the seven churches, the word is also translated in its original meaning, angelos, which means a sent messenger who proclaims good news. Which can mean the leader or pastor of the church or in essence the preacher. So what Jesus is saying, hey, I have a message for the leader to give to the congregation. So it's for both. It's not just for the leader. It's for both. So you can't throw the congregation out of there. It's for both. Because what is the messenger supposed to do? He's supposed to preach the good news. That's what Romans chapter 10 says. Because faith comes by hearing and by hearing the word of God. And he says, how do they hear the word of God? By those who are sent. A preacher has to be sent. And he says this in 10.15. Says, how shall they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So this messenger, as we look at this text, as we look at the rest of the the letters to the seven churches, is most likely the pastor, the leader of the congregation. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of of the creation of God. Now the Laodiceans were a people defined by their culture. Let me say that again. The Laodiceans were a people defined by their culture. Are we not that same way in California? Southern Californians? You go to NorCal, they know you're from SoCal. Outside of Sacramento, and you go up to NorCal, I mean, you might as well like draw a line right there. And that's because they, they want to be the state of Jefferson. I don't know if you guys ever heard that, but, it, but up, up in there above Sacramento, you got people up there that want to separate from California. Okay? 
But if you even, even Southern California, if you go to Montana, I had a, uh, one of my workers, he went up to Whitefish, Montana, to go skiing. And he comes by, Mike, they're so different up there. They're weird. I go, what do you mean, man? I go, they're looking at you. They know you're a Southern Californian. You don't have to sport your license plate around. It's just your mannerism. They know they're de- we're defined by our culture. You know, it's, 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 we're, it's inevitable. We're going to be defined by our culture. However, there is a security in that, and that's Jesus. That's Jesus. So people are defined by their cultures, and the, the Laodiceans were a self-sufficient community. They were located in Asia Minor during that time, which is modern-day Turkey. So they were smack in the middle. They were strategically located. God had put that there for a specific reason. But they were there, allowed to see it was right there in the middle of uh, Ephesus on the west and Colossae on the right. Major trade route through there. So they prospered economically. They prospered economically. They also prospered industrially. They took advantage of all the black sheep around in that local area, used the wool and the material to make fine linen clothing. And man, it sold during that time. For you that are in the clothes, you know, I'm, a, I'm a victim of that too. And some, some my, my boys are that way too. I'm like, Argh. but if you're a victim to that, you know exactly what I'm saying. You know exactly what I'm saying, and I'm not condemning you for it, but that was one of the things that they prospered in industrially. Also, medically, they prospered. They were ahead of the times with the eye self, ahead of the times with all their medical industrial movements. Also, socially, socially they prospered because they were a prominent community because why? They were so self-sufficient. Look at what that church is doing. Look at what that city is doing. In A.D. 60, they suffered from a major earthquake that devastated the entire city. Devastated it. Well, because they were under Roman rule, just like we're under the federal government, they didn't want FEMA coming in to aid them, to help them, or imperial aid back in that time. I'm talking FEMA because that's our time. But they didn't want any imperial aid to help them rebuild the city. They relied on their self-sufficiency to build their city back up, to build all their industrial stuff back up, and to make them prosperous once again because they wanted to show and see and tell that they were self-sufficient, did not need any help from outside. Man, that can happen. Look at the spiritual connection there. Can that happen to a church? Can that happen to a church body? Can that happen to a church people individually when they prosper? I don't know, can it? We'll see. These things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now we see here how Jesus reveals or introduces himself as the authority behind the letter. The authority behind the letter. But what's so significant about how he introduces himself or he reveals himself, it has everything to do with the spiritual connection of the letter. Now, if you look at all the other six churches, how he introduces himself, it has to do with where they're at spiritually. So look at what he says here. He's so interested in their relationship. He's so interested in the relationship between him and the church. 
This is why he introduces himself that way. That's what matters to him most. But he's identifying himself as something special. Look at these things says the amen. In other words, the absolute, the only thing you can trust in. That's what he's saying. The only thing. And then he says right here, the faithful and true witness, the only one you can rely on to give you truth. This is what he's saying to the church. Look at how he reveals himself to them. And then he says this, the beginning of the creation of God, not meaning that he was the first created being. That's not what it means. It means that he is the, has the authority and rule over all creation because he is the source of it. Because of him, all things were created. And for him, and all dominions and principalities are for him. He's saying what? In essence, he's saying one word. He is the preeminent one. So if he's identifying himself as the preeminent one, what's the spiritual connection to this church? What have they lost? Preeminent means what? They have sole, sole priority, priority over your life. That they are number one in every aspect of your life. That it rules and it defines who you are. That's what that word means. That's what Jesus is. You remember the the letter to the Colossians, correct? What is the letter of the Colossians? What's the whole theme? The preeminent one, Jesus Christ, the head, the body of the church. He's it. You need nothing else but him. That book, the book of Colossians, was also supposed to be read where? And Laodicea. It's what Paul said towards the end of the message. Make sure, paraphrasing, you give this to the Laodiceans and make it sure it's read in their church. So he had a message for them in that church, in Colossae. Paul had a message for the Laodiceans. So Jesus is identifying himself as the preeminent one. Again, which in turn shows the spiritual connection or depravity in which the church has. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. The third or second element, the effects on your relationship. The effects on your relationship. You know, Jesus, he is so, he is so interested, just like I said, on, on, on what you do. He is so interested in you. He would not have died the way he died for you. He would not have taken the time and all those steps to live the life he lived for us if he wasn't so serious about the church's relationship. So look at what he says here in verse 15. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. Now, This reveals one thing about Jesus' nature, his omniscient nature. And it has to do, and it comes right out of who he is. He's sovereign, isn't he? He's sovereign. What does sovereign mean in the economy of God? An absolute control and authority over all events of the universe, of your life. That's what sovereignty means in the economy of God. But also the intent of that sovereignty is this. It's passion for you. Passion for you salvation. He wants you to be saved and know him. That is the intent of his sovereignty. It's never to come out and go, it's never like that. Don't ever. Somebody gives you a hellfire and brimstone message. Make sure, make sure 
the love and the hope is in there. Make sure it's there. There's every bit of truth in those messages, but there's every bit of truth on what God's intent is for those messages, and that's for to bring you back to salvation. Okay, that's the intent. So Jesus is omniscient in nature. But look at this word, I know. It's the Greek word, edo. It's not the Greek word like I've thrown around before, gnosko. This is a different word, edo. Edo. And it means to know with an accusative tone. In other words, Jesus or the object, Jesus, is paying attention or the person is paying attention, Jesus, to the object, the church, and he sees what they're doing. He's omniscient. All-knowing. He's Edo. I Edo your works. He knows exactly what they're doing. It's because Jesus is paying attention to the church. In other words, Jesus has been paying attention to the lifestyle or the worship of the Laodiceans. That's what the word means. He's paying attention. He's watching them. And it affects him. It affects the relationship. Back at verse 15, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. Now that word works. He knows your works. The word implies works. It does not imply the works of the law which a man approaches God. It implies the conduct of living in the relation to their conviction, who they are and who they say to be. They say they are Christians and they aren't living that way at least according to Jesus' review of it. And isn't that what's most important? How Jesus sees us? Not how the body sees us, but how Jesus sees us. And that's what's most important to him, at least in Laodicea here. So the word implies their conduct of living in relation to their conviction. It does not apply to the works of the law, like I said, but the very evidence of the relationship with Jesus. That's their works, their evidence on how they live, their lifestyle, even in their private life, not just in the church, even in their private life. He knows their works is what he says to the Laodiceans. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. It's interesting that Jesus, another, to, 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 to drive the point home, to show them how much he cares, he identifies the weakness in their spiritual walk or relationship. And the emphasis is on being being neither cold nor hot, which can only reveal one thing, right? What is that? If you're not cold or you're not hot, or that drink isn't cold or it's hot, it's what? Lukewarm. It's not good to the taste. It's good for nothing. But it's interesting enough, and again, I'm using the literal view of this, But Jesus uses the analogy of their culture to prove a spiritual connection in their walk. And what is it? It's the weak spot. Their water source. Where did these folks get their water source? Well, they were situated along the Meander River right there on the eastern portion of Turkey. Modern day Turkey. Back then Asia Minor. Their water source came from Heropolis. It came from a spring, hot springs, many of them. It came down the Meander River. So by the time it got to Laodicea, it was neither hot nor cold. It was lukewarm. So Jesus is identifying their spiritual weakness by using an analogy of their culture. Interesting how he does that, doesn't he? 
That's why it's so important to always be filled with the Holy Spirit. So important to always be in the word. So important to always be fervent in nature for him so you can see with eyes open. But he, he, he identifies their weakness and also physically because anybody, any enemy can come in and shut off their water source and that would be done for them. Starve them. Dehydrate them. You know, that's what the enemies did before back in those days. They surrounded their cities and wouldn't let them come out. They did that to our brothers. They surrounded the Assyrians and the Babylonians did that back in history. They surrounded the city of Jerusalem and would not let them get out and they were forced to eat their own people. How disgusting the enemy can be. But look at how Jesus, look how loving, look how personal he is with this church and he identifies their weakness. He says, hey, you have a weakness and it's getting bad, is what he's saying to Laodicea. Verse 16. Because you say I'm rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. One of the things that the Laodiceans suffered was this. They thought they were healthy. They thought they had everything going for them. Why? Because they prospered in everything. They had everything economically. They had everything industrious. They had everything medically. They had everything socially. They were perfect. And people wanted that. But it was something that was a weakness that Jesus identified because it was affecting the relationship, the effects of your relationship. And that's what he's so interested about. The effects of the relationship, the effects of being prosperous, caused them, caused them to be lukewarm. Now I'm not saying that you cannot be prosperous and not be hot and fervent. It all depends on your heart. It all depends on your relationship. But this specific church went a different route and they became lukewarm. They were neither cold nor hot and Jesus could not do anything with that. Charles Spurgeon preached a a remarkable message on this. But if you read his message, it's called An Earnest Warning Against Lukewarmness. And I read it and I wept. And I felt uncomfortable and I felt sad and I felt downtrodden. All this stuff because he started listing on what a Laodicean church looks like. And one of the elements of that church was that they have prayer meetings, but no one shows up because the congregation desires quiet evenings at home. And if they do show up, they pray in such a way where it's specifically in nature and have no excitement in their prayer towards the Lord. (gasps) I was like, cut. But at the end of this list, I dare not read it to you, but I I encourage you to go home and read it. Again, it's a warning. It's a warning. Everybody here, everybody, everybody in our church is on different spiritual levels. But God desires something very, very special in our relationship. But that's always to be fervent for Him. But at the end of those lists, He says this, They are neither hot for the truth, nor hot for conversions, nor hot for holiness. They are not fiery enough to burn the stubble of sin, nor zealous enough to make Satan angry. (laughs) Nor zealous enough to make Satan angry. If you're having trials and tribulations in your life, it's probably because you have Satan's mad at you. 
Every time I have the opportunity to speak, something happens. Something happens. Satan's angry. But look at what he says. He says, nor zealous enough to make Satan angry, nor fervent enough to make a living sacrifice of themselves upon the altar of their God. They are neither cold nor hot. Now understand this. This was once a church that had a faith that was renowned, vibrant, and growing. How do I know that? How do we know that? We can tell by the context they were somewhere along the line of having some kind of good spiritual. They started out on a good, good track there. The race started good. But somewhere along the wrong of their race, they started to grow lukewarm. But if you look at the book of Colossians and you understand the context of that book and the message, Jesus being preeminent, the hope and glory of Jesus Christ, what is the riches of Jesus Christ that Paul describes to the, to, to, to the, to the church of what the mystery that has now been revealed amongst the Gentiles? What is, that rich, what is that rich glory? He says, Christ in them. Christ in them. That is the hope of glory. And then he also said, let the words of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to our Lord, singing with grace in our hearts. That, everything there, and then he all, at the beginning of the letter, he says to both Colossae and the Laodiceans, because that was supposed to be read in both churches, he says to them, you know what? Your faith is well known because you love all the brothers. Because how much you love people. So they, we have an understanding that they started out on the right foot. That they started running the race with some kind of fervency. But somewhere along the line that prosperity came in and they no longer needed Jesus. They no longer put him preeminent in their life. He no longer was every bit of who he's supposed to be spiritually in their individual personal lives. Something happened. And cause them to be lukewarm. Another way to look at this is this. You know, Jesus calls us. He, he tells us the way to love the Lord is what? With all our strength, mind, soul, and our heart. Everything in us. They were lacking that. Yeah, they were doing the right things. But that element was not present. That element was not on fire. And that's what he was so concerned about. The third element, third element here, repentance and restoration. The Lord's intent with every correction, the Lord's intent with every correction is always repentance and restoration. I want you to understand that. Now, most pastors who preach this text, I don't know that they spend a lot of time more on the rebuke than they do the love and the intent. And that's what my message is for you today is to show you how much he loves this church. This church, Laodicea. He did not cast them out. But he loves them in such a way, even their spiritual condition that they have, he still loves them enough to tell them such. To identify the weakness so they don't die or fade away or forget his love. Look at this in verse 18. Because this, the, 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 the verse before verse 18, he says, because you think you're healthy and you're really not, look at what he says in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich in white garments 
that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed in your anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. I counsel you to buy me. Again, Jesus' heart and intent is always for you, never against you. Even though he says no, it doesn't mean he's against you. It's for you. He has a different plan. Now we must understand that to really understand the righteousness or the character or the morality of who God is in our lives. You have to understand that. It's always for development, sanctification, growth in grace and knowledge of him. Look at what he's talking about. He's saying, you guys think you're good here? I'm going to bring another analogy of your culture and say, nope, you need to buy from me gold that's refined in fire. In other words, stuff that's going to bring you satisfaction, stuff that's truly going to make you prosper. And then you, need, you think you're good with all that black garment? Well, try on my garments because that's going to make you holy. That's going to make you pure. So we see how Jesus is so interested and cares about their spiritual condition enough to get them to understand and realize their poverty. Isn't that the first step of repentance? You have to understand your poverty in order to realize Christ's riches. You have to. The church needed to. And he was trying to bring this message to them. Because the Laodiceans had another view of their condition, Jesus gives the church counsel or truth, which really makes them rich, which really makes them prosper, and which really makes them true. So we see here, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. In other words, you won't be ashamed from me. The rest of the world, he's telling the Laodiceans, that's going to bring you shame. In the end, that is not going to give you the sustainment or the prosperity or the, 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 the person of who you are. That is not going to bring the satisfaction. You're going to be left ashamed. But look at what he says. And your nakedness may not be revealed. Anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. In other words, be anointed with the Holy Spirit that you may see, that you may know, that you may hear. Verse 18, still on the third element, restoration or repentance and restoration. So after verse 18, he says this, which is so beautiful. And again, I, I want to concentrate more on, on Jesus' heart here for the church than, than the rebuke. The rebuke is one thing. But to understand the intent behind the rebuke is another Listen to what he says. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. As many as I love. Look at that. Even though their spiritual connection or their spiritual condition was declining, they were lukewarm and Jesus did not like it. It was so bad he was going to vomit them out of his mouth. I think I might have missed that. He said, I will vomit you out of my mouth. In other words, that word there, I will. He say, he's saying, I'm going to if it doesn't change. But it was so bad. It was so distasteful. Jesus was a friend enough. He loved them enough to tell them their weakness. Now, there's a lot of times in my own spiritual walk. It hurts when I sit down and I talk to the Lord and I ask him, Lord, where am I at? How am I doing? What's going on with my life? He brings me right back to his word and gets me so focused on what he wants me to do. 
He gets me off myself and on Him. But look at what He says here. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, I be, therefore be zealous and repent. That word is not I love. That word is not the agape I love. But it is the word phileo, friendship. But it is so rooted in the agape. Why? Because in God's economy, all the other aspects of love have to be rooted in agape. For God so loved the world. Everything that comes out of that love is the, the true friendship, the true intimacy. So basically what Jesus is saying is many as are my true friends that I consider my true friends. In other words, I am a true friend to you. He still considers them a friend. Understand that. After all the stuff that he just said there, the rebuke of those first three verses, and, and he still considers them a friend. Awesome. Beautiful how God does that. That is his nature. That is his nature from the Old Testament into the New and today. He is not a God of the wrath of the Old Testament and a God of love of the New Testament, or the Old Testament and a God of love of the New Testament. He is the same. He is a God of love from chapter 1 of Genesis to Revelation chapter 22 of the New Testament. And that's how he looks at his church. So Jesus is saying to the Laodiceans, he still considers them a friend and he loves them so much as a friend, he's, he's willing to go out of his way and give them this rebuke. Give them this rebuke. Look what he says. He says, I rebuke and chasten. Now when we hear that word, we crumble, don't we? Ah, I'm doing something wrong. But we have to understand the nature of the rebuke. And I think he does a beautiful job in Hebrews. If you just listen, internalize this in chapter 12, verses 5 through 8. The writer of Hebrews says this to the Hebrews. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. Which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Do you see how Jesus, his relation to his people, his church, as a father, or God the Father to his church. It's as a father. It's always that way. I mean, us as, as parents, I know there's parents in there. You pay attention to your children. You correct them so they don't go down the wrong path. Because that's basically what the rebuke means. It means to correct or to find fault in something that shows otherwise. To keep someone or something from going any further in that present condition. In other words, we can glean from this text that Jesus still has a plan for his church. Jesus still wants a relation with his church and Jesus is still jealous for their heart. He desires that preeminence in their lives. That's what he's saying to them. That's why he goes right into the word zealous. Be zealous and repent. It's the Greek word zelao. Zelao. It means this to burn with desire and eagerness, 
to burn with desire and eagerness. In a positive tense, not the negative tense where you're going to go after on vengeance, but where in this context and in this nature of the word, it's where you pursue Jesus, the heart of Jesus. Eagerness, a burn with inside of you, a passion because of what he has done for you. That's what that word means. Where everything about you has to do with Jesus and getting to know him. That's what being zealous means. All parts of your life, your work, your marriage, your family, in the church. We always just think it's in the church, but it's more on the outside of the church because that's where the witness is. That's where Jesus is paying attention to the Laodiceans on how they worship and how their lifestyle is. But look at the next verse. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now we got to take a look at that word behold because I think it loses its significance in our English language. We don't talk that way. Behold, you read books that way, but you don't talk that way. You don't you go to the Rodman's house and go, look, Adam, behold. You know, you, you don't do that. But the word in its entirety and its meaning, is mean, it means this, seize the moment of what I'm going to show you. Pay attention. That's what Jesus is saying. Seize this opportunity and gaze upon or internalize what I'm about to speak to you. That's what he says here. That's that word. Look at what he says. Behold, here's what you're supposed to seize hold of. Here's what the Laodiceans are supposed to take hold of. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now we must understand something in the way this is written. Jesus is not writing. and He's not speaking directly or, or excuse me, to the church. What is he saying? If anyone, if anyone hears my voice, So he's talking to each Laodicean in the church. If any of you Laodiceans hear me, open up the door and I will come and dine with you and you with me. It's it's, it's just remarkable how the church starts or or, or this, this revival starts with each person individually. And that's where Jesus' focus is at, is that each one individually. You know, that should bring comfort and peace It does bring comfort and peace to my soul that he knows that in this whole body of believers, he's considered, he he, he pays attention to me also and how I live. Mind-blowing how God does this. Beautiful how the Lord shows his love to each one of us individually. And that's what he says. He says individually in the church, of even the leaders, even the leaders, now, you've got to understand something, how he hits home like this, because he's also using their name to bring in a spiritual connection, because the name Laodicean means this, justice for the people, or justice of the people. In other words, they were a church governed by the people instead of God. This is how they operated. They were democratic in nature, instead of having a preeminent one, in which the book of Colossians exhorts us to have. So again, Jesus is alluding to a spiritual connection here. Not so much that he's on the outside of the church trying to get in, but he's on the outside of these individual lives trying to get in and trying to be a part of it. So beautiful 
how Jesus wants to do that. But it's so beautiful how he's a gentleman. He doesn't go busting down your life. He doesn't go busting down the door. Now, at some point when he comes again, he's going to come like that. But right now we're in the disposition of grace. Right now he is so gentlemanlike. It's just like a, it's just, I mean, you, I, I don't want to rob the, the, the connection here with Jesus, but it's just like in our marriage, how you woo your wife. You open up the door for her. You spend time with her. You want to get to know her. You find out about her. All of that, all of that fervency, all of that passion. You want to dine with her. You want to get to know her because with all this intimacy, that Jesus is alluding to here in this chapter, or in this verse right here, because that's what he wants. He wants a relationship with this church. There's three things that he's looking for in intimacy. Conversation, revelation, and glorification. He wants to converse with you. He wants to reveal his nature to you. And he wants to reveal his glory to you. We have that picture of where? In Exodus and Moses. What was he doing on the mountain? After all that stuff he was going through, he'd been up there. And man, Lord, you want me to go back down again? Please tell me who your name is. Show me your glory. That's all he wanted. Show me your glory. And he did. He says, I'm going to tell you my name. That's my glory. That's how I'm going to reveal myself to you. I know you. I do know you. That's my glory. You know, I wonder, is that the prayer of our hearts today? Are we in a quiet place with him? Lord, show me your glory today. No matter where I'm at, I'm I'm joyful. I'm on the mountaintop. Show me more of your glory. I'm in the valleys. I'm battling. I'm on my knees. I'm on my face. Show me your glory. Give me some hope, Lord. That's what he wanted. And that's what this dining is. That's what this intimacy is all about. It's conversation, revelation, and glorification. It's all those three things, which causes what? (sighs) Excitement. You want more. You want more. But the process of getting there, you have to identify your poverty to understand the riches in Christ. To understand the riches in Christ. Look at what he says here. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Listen to this. To him who overcomes. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Listen to this portion. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. We're all about victory and being overcomers, right? And the Bible says our victory is what? Our faith. But Jesus gives a special point to this church. He says the way you're going to be an overcomer, the way you're going to be a victorious over all this stuff is do it like I did it. Look at me, the way I overcame and sat down with my father on the throne. That's what he's saying. Now, if we're honest with ourselves and and the way the Bible disclaims our our, our spiritual walk, aren't we supposed to look at Jesus? When I have difficulties in Scripture and trying to figure stuff out and what's actually being said, I always go to the fact, what did Jesus say? What did Jesus do about this specific point here? And you go to the Gospels and you find out. You know, Jesus was a man of busyness, wasn't he? He was always busy about doing what God had called him to do. And he put his boys through that test also. He trained them that way. He took them through tests, trials, through tribulations. He showed them how to cast out demons. He showed them how to live. He showed them how to pray. And he showed them how to worship. He did all that so that they would be victorious. 
so that they would know. It's so beautiful that he does this to this church. Here's a church who's lukewarm and he said, hey, if you want to overcome, if you want to be victorious, do it like I did it. Live like me. Overcome like I have overcome. I just love that. Be zealous like Jesus. His whole, his whole entire, everything he wanted to do was to please the Father and do the things of the Father. Is that zealous or not? Is that fervency or is that lukewarmness? That's what he wanted. He wanted everything to do with the Father. Last verse. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, or excuse me, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, for each one of us, and I, I told you all the, the different four views and approaches to this book. And it's very important that we take all four and internalize that for each one of us individually. Because there is a message. If you hear and you understand It's not just for one church, but all the churches. Look at what he says here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All seven of them. And all seven of them represent some spiritual condition in our walk, in our race that we go through. But the important thing to remember, the, the, the monumental thing to remember, the glorious thing to remember, the victorious thing to remember, that each one of these letters... Who is there speaking to him? Jesus. That means each spiritual condition you go through in your life, he's showing us that he's going to be there speaking to you. Oh my gosh. He's not going to forsake me. He's not going to leave me that way. He wants a spiritual relationship with me. He wants a relationship that is true in nature, that is fervent, that is on fire, and that does anything he's called me to do. That's Jesus. He sees the loveless church. He sees the persecuted church. He sees the perverted church. He sees the corrupted church. He sees the dead church. He sees the alive church. And he sees the lukewarm church. And he's there through every spiritual condition, warning them, bringing them into his heart. Ah, so marvelous and beautiful, isn't it? There's no other God that does that. There's nothing in this world that can provide that kind of sustainment in our walk in life until he comes. Nothing. And that's what he's saying to Laodicea. I am the preeminent one. You have lost your preeminence in your life. I'll close you with this. We all have heard the song, I have decided to follow Jesus. We've all heard that, right? And we all think that what? Oh, that's a salvation song. That's an altar call song. Every hymn has a story behind it. It's just like the bluegrass music. They all have stories, real stories behind it. The hymn, what is a hymn? I tell the young kids, a hymn is a song to him. Right? It's a personal devotion to him. It's a personal trial walk to him. That's a hymn. You don't have to get all technical. It's a song to him. But those hymns are so so beautiful in nature, so powerful in nature, so spiritual in nature, and so personal in nature. That song, I decided to follow Jesus. 
didn't, didn't come out of the Billy Graham crusades. It didn't come out of the Greg Laurie crusades. It didn't come out of anything of that. It came out of a place in northern India called Assam. It was a province in northern India which was controlled by oppressive Hinduism. Yeah, Hinduism. You don't really think that Hinduism is that oppressive, but there was headhunters in these areas. In the 1800s, it got really bad in that northern part of India. And guess what God does about that? He sends missionaries over there. And who went? There was a Welsh missionary that decided to follow Jesus and go that way. And he spread the gospel in times of persecution, of times of torment, of times of oppression to these Indians there. And there was a specific family that got saved by this Welshman. There was two, two children, a wife and a father. Well, because of their conversion, because of their new life in Jesus Christ, these oppressors of the Hindus decided to harass this family and make a spectacle of them, an example of them in their village. They got a firing squad of archers and lined up his family right in front of him. And one of the oppressors grabbed him and said, Denounce Jesus Christ now! And he said this, I have decided to follow Jesus. And that archer pulled back the arrow, the bow, and shot his wife, or excuse me, his two children, dead right there. The oppressor goes back to him and says, Denounce Jesus Christ! And he says, Though none go with me, I still will follow. Pulls back the bow, kills his wife. He said, Now! Do it. Denounce Jesus Christ. And he says, though the cross before me, the world's behind me. And he followed his family right there, right there and then. The remarkable thing that happened out of all that, because during those times in the villages and that culture and that geographical location, every time there was something that happened like that, who was out there? All the villagers. They're all watching this. Even the oppressors. And a couple of the villagers went to that English, that that Welshman and told them the words that came out of this man's mouth during this time of persecution. And he did not give up. He did not denounce Jesus Christ. And guess what? All the villagers got saved and those oppressors who killed his family, they were saved. Why do I tell you this story? You cannot live that way. You cannot live in the trials of life. You cannot live in the persecutions of life if your heart's lukewarm. Yeah, that message probably has to do with Smyrna, but I think it has everything to do with Laodicea. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you for your truth. Lord, sometimes the words uh, that you say are, are, are very hard to take in and to internalize. But again, just like your word says, your intent is always for restoration. Your intent is always for repentance. And your intent is always to to, to have a, a new walk, a new spiritual life in you and bring us back into salvation. And I pray that whatever was spoken here today that was of you and whatever message you had to each one of these people individually, 
whoever they might be, because I know the message is for everyone in here at some level of their walk, including mine, that the intent of it would draw them that much closer to have such a fervency for you, such a passion for you, such a zealous heart. We praise you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, for, for you being that absolute one who we can absolutely trust in. In Jesus' name, amen.